Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. Even before the threat of the quarantine 15 or the idea that some Americans are at risk of packing on 15 pounds during the pandemic due to stress baking, mindless snacking, and reduced physical activity, the rate of obesity in America has been stubbornly rising, creating a challenge and an opportunity for the food and beverage industry. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, roughly 42% of Americans were obese and 9.2% were severely obese in 2018, up from 30.5% and 4.7% respectively in 2000. Despite efforts to reverse this trend, most physicians predict the rate of obesity in the U.S. will continue to rise over the next 10 years. Specifically, a survey of 515 physicians across 27 specialties fielded this winter by the global social platform CIRMO, along with top researchers at Duke University and the University of North Carolina, found 70% of respondents believe that more than half of the U.S. adult population will be obese by 2030. While this ominous trend may feel unstoppable, there are several steps that the food and beverage industry can take to help reduce obesity, according to Dr. Morali Doraswamy, a professor of psychiatry and medicine at Duke University School of Medicine and a scientific advisor to CIRMO. But to do that, he explains in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, stakeholders first need to understand what's driving the rise in obesity, including the impact of fad diets and the potential for personalized nutrition. Within the confines of a few different dietary patterns, nutrition recommendations in the U.S. historically have followed a one-size-fits-all template that is based on a healthy population, even though, as the CDC and CIRMO data show, many Americans are far from healthy. This has led to the promotion of a plethora of diets of varying levels of scientific support and marketing potential that have generated significant consumer confusion about what's really healthy. Consumers uh, are confused and they're also frustrated with all of the information and, um, and physicians likewise. You know, there are so many different fad diets coming out um, with so little evidence that it's really hard to tell, you know, what to recommend to patients. You know, two years ago, paleo was hot. This year, keto is hot. And then who knows, vegan plant-based diet might be hot next year. And there's an average sort of gap of about 10 to 15 years before uh, scientists can do clinical trials, really evaluating all of these claims. So what do you do in that interim 10 to 12 years? And so the randomized control trial is obviously the highest standard of evidence. Uh, but you, if you wait for randomized control trials, it might take one or two decades to answer every possible question in the field. You know, are organic foods good or plant-based milk good or whatever? So the second best option is what is called as an expert consensus survey. An expert consensus survey is where you actually poll a group of experts, some of whom are you know, on the front lines taking care of patients, some are academics, 
or some are doing uh, a hardcore research. And, and those kinds of polls have shown that they can often be very prescient uh, and very good at predicting the future. So CERMO, to some extent, you know, was set up uh, for uh, those kinds of uh, scientific expert consensus surveys in real time. Um, so CERMO is a, a unique sort of uh, social platform for physicians. Uh, it uh, has about 800,000 fully verified physicians across like something like you know, 80, 90 specialties and in multiple geographic regions around the world. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, I, I and CERMO uh, thought that this was really a good place for us to do an expert consensus survey of the top, say, you know, 10 to 15 questions that are vexing all of us at an individual level and could we then get sort of a group consensus uh, that might shed some light on it. Among the vexing questions Sermo asked in this study was what contributes most to U.S. obesity epidemic? What should Americans eat to live a healthier lifestyle? And what strategies will most effectively help turn the tide on the epidemic? Based on much of the information available to mainstream consumers, the answer might seem like it's a lack of willpower or genetics. But according to Sermo, the real answer is environmental factors. So one of the questions we asked was, which of the following do you think contributes the most to the U.S. obesity epidemic? And so the choices we gave them were environmental factors, willpower or genetics. Only 3% of doctors picked genetics as the biggest contributor to obesity, and 80% picked the environment. So really what it's saying is that there are massive societal forces that are interplaying, um, and in in a way it's sort of like a perfect storm. Uh, So it, it sort of reminds me of that old quote that one of my teachers told me when I was in medical school uh, is genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. So that, I think, is the key message uh, from this particular uh, survey is that our, our behavior and the environment are really the biggest triggers to this rising obesity crisis, and therefore they are the ones um, that we should focus the most attention to. Within this context, Dora Swamy acknowledged different diets can provide structure for followers to navigate environmental factors, including unhealthy triggers that bombard consumers each time they enter a grocery store. But which diet's best? To find out, Sermo asked physicians to rank the best diets for short-term weight loss and long-term optimal health, as well as describe their own diets. Most diets have some benefits in the short term, but what we don't know anything about is what are the long-term sort of uh, risks and benefits of these diets. So, so we posed uh, three questions to doctors on that. We asked them, you know, what is the sort of best diet you recommend for short-term weight loss? The, the number one diet was the Mediterranean Mind Diet, uh, which is actually a, a very healthy, sustainable uh, diet, and it's probably the world's most researched diet. So this answer actually really, really matches well with the scientific literature. But about 20% of doctors pick pick the ketogenic diet. And again, you know, what that means is that one in five doctors are prescribing it. Yeah, there is some short-term weight loss, but at the same time, you know, what it's saying is that medicine is influenced by culture. You know, even doctors are sort of uh, susceptible to fads. 
um, and 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 that may be, well be it because the very next question we ask them, which is the best diet you would recommend for long-term optimal health, and you can see that only five percent of doctors recommended the ketogenic diet. So very clearly, what this is saying is that doctors don't think the ketogenic diet is well studied enough. Um, uh, or possibly they had some concerns about safety uh, or long-term efficacy or compliance. Uh, so again, the Mediterranean diet was what was recommended by uh, more than 50% of doctors. Uh, it's kind of interesting that the second most popular one um, was the DASH diet, because that's also one that's very similar to the Mediterranean diet, uh, and doctors are very familiar with it. And if you look at what doctors themselves eat, it also sort of matches these same patterns. Very few doctors are following the ketogenic diet. Most of them are on the Mediterranean diet. So again, suggesting that you know the 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 Mediterranean diet, which is sort of the least fatty diet, if you will, right now, is probably the 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 best researched and the one that you know is most sustainable. When considering which diet to recommend, the survey revealed that doctors not only consider their patients' health but 44% also take into account the diet's impact on the planet and climate change. While following a diet provides effective guideposts for selecting healthier options, Doris Swamy reiterated a one-size-fits-all approach is limited, which opens the door for innovations around personalized nutrition. I think personalized nutrition is here to stay, and it's probably, you know, you can call it the nutrition of the 21st century and beyond. Uh, but I would also uh, put a caveat and say we're at the dawn of the era of personalized nutrition, and there are many unknowns. Uh, there are three studies that I'm going to um, cite for you uh, that uh, sort of drive my views of personalized nutrition. So the first is uh, a very interesting study uh, called Food for Me. It's a large ongoing study uh, the, some of the results were launched uh, a year ago of 1,700 people across seven countries. And they, they compared four different types of intervention. So one was a control group where people could eat whatever they want. Uh, the second was where they only got personalized dietary advice from a dietitian. So a dietitian would talk to them, look at their behaviors, look at their sort of whether they were eating mindfully, whether they were eating in an unhealthy pattern, so on and so forth, and would give them personalized coaching on their diet. The second, uh, the third arm got personalized dietary coaching plus some coaching based on their microbiome, which was the bacteria in their gut. And then the last arm got all of this plus personalized genetic counseling. So, the fourth arm in many ways represents what everyone thinks is the state of the art in personalized nutrition. So combine your personal genetic information, your microbiome information, get personalized dietary coaching, and see if the three together are better than just going and seeing a dietitian. So the results of the study were kind of surprising. The first result was that any type of personalized intervention was better than the control group. So suggesting that personalized nutrition does help in terms of weight loss and does help in terms of uh, improving some uh, metabolic uh, markers. 
But within the three active groups, what they found was the groups that got genomic or, met, or microbiomic counseling did not do any better than the group that just got behavioral interventions from a, from a dietitian. So what that suggests is one of the two things. One is either the environmental and behavioral triggers are so large that they sort of overwhelm the genomic and microbiomic uh, triggers, or that we don't know enough about the human genome and the microbiome to really uh, draw useful insights from that. So that is one study, and the takeaway from that is, yes, personalized nutrition does work, and it works better than just you know eating sort of a one-size-fits-all kind of a diet. So the second study is called the PREDICT study, and, and so this you know, almost everything about personalized nutrition today, people think about genomics, right? You say you contact one of these companies, you see advertised on TV or on Shark Tank, you have them send you a kit at home, you swab your cheek, or you put your stool in it and you send it away and voila, it comes back saying you avoid broccoli or you eat a lot of butter or whatever, right? So most of the stuff that we get from genomics, nobody has ever tested it. Uh, so the assumption is that genomics drives a big chunk of your food responses. So if you eat a standardized meal, uh, the amount of sugar that spikes in your blood, the amount of triglycerides that spike in your blood, this is all driven like 100% by your genome. That was the assumption. So the PREDICT study actually looked to test that. So what they did was they took a sample of twins. Now, obviously, identical twins uh, are matched in their genetics. So this is the perfect group. So you could feed identical twins. So they had 700 twins, and they fed them standardized meals, and they measured their blood responses to, you know, glucose response, triglyceride response, insulin response, et cetera. And what they found was only 30% of the insulin response was identical between twins. Only 20% of the fat response, triglyceride response, and only 50% of the glucose response was identical between twins. Only 37% of the gut microbiome was similar between twins. So overall, what this says is that genetics plays a relatively small part in determining the response to the food we eat. A lot more is driven by variables that we have not identified yet. Could be the environment, uh, could be other things, what we call the exposome. The exposome means how much we sleep, how much we exercise, what is the amount of stress, um, you know, so on and so forth. So this, again, brings back the key insight that doctors from the CERMO poll provided, which is genetics plays a very smart role. It is the environment. So it's the environment, environment, environment. We need to change the macro environment and our personal environment. So each of us really needs to sort of ask ourselves, what do we do from morning to night? What is the environment? How can we change it? How can we change our refrigerator, the way we shop in the grocery store, the way we eat, the size of our plates, how much time we take to eat, you know, so on and so forth. And then the third study uh, I'm going to cite to you, uh, it's a very interesting study. It, it found that the nutrients listed on the food labels explained less than half of the responses that any given person has uh, in their bloodstream. So again, there are some very complex things we don't understand, 
What we do know is that behavior change is the single best way to personalize a person's nutrition. These three studies, combined with CERMO's survey results, suggest that early advances in personalized nutrition that focus on genomics, the microbiome, or other physical markers may either be misplaced or only part of the answer. So I think personally, the genetic testing and the microbiome testing is not at the point where one can make really credible science-based recommendations. Of course, there are always going to be some people who are saying, oh, you know, you're preventing me from going into the future or this, that, you're stuck in the past, whatever. But the reality is you could be doing yourself more harm uh, than good because if you're avoiding big chunks of different types of foods based on genetic testing that's not proven, uh, then that's not healthy. I think trying to develop a very good understanding of a person's behavior, we call that deep phenotyping. If we can do deep phenotyping of an individual's based on apps, based on wearables, uh, based on sleep uh, devices, if we can truly understand what a person's true baseline is, then we can come up with a personalized dietary slash behavioral environmental plan for the person. That's what we need. And to me, that is the uh, best opportunity for making an impact. For personal attempts at adopting healthier lifestyles to be most effective, Doris Swamy argues several macro changes to the societal level must also occur. Pointing to the CERMO survey, he explains that these could include some experimental strategies like sugar taxes or increased involvement of dietitians in healthcare planning, and even broader support for exercise. One of the solutions we asked them was, do you think we should impose a tax on uh, sugar-sweetened beverages? The vast majority of doctors, I think like 56% said yes, because you know, in a way, beverages are the, uh, sweetened beverages are one, uh, maybe the leading cause. And the majority of doctors want to change the environment so that uh, you know, sugar calories are not subsidized. Uh, so we really need to wean Americans off of this sort of uh, addiction. And then the other one we asked was, you know, currently dietitians and dietary counseling uh, to provide you with behavior change advice and personalized dietary advice is only covered by insurance if you have an illness. Uh, so the question we asked was, should insurance companies be required to cover a dietitian visit from a preventive perspective, even for patients who are sort of just at the mild overweight stage without any obvious diseases or metabolic abnormalities? And that's kind of, you know, uh, very, very uh, different from what is practiced today. And But 85% of doctors said they want it. Uh, and 85% of doctors basically, you know, value increasing the role of the dietitian. Uh, they don't have the time to do it in their practice. Uh, they want insurance companies to pay for it so that a patient can get, you know, um, uh, dietitian visits uh, covered. And then the other question was, you know, a lot of people don't have time to work out uh, because they're busy until 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. They're tired and they have to go home, take care of their families. So the question we asked was, should employers give employees an exercise hour as part of their regular paid workday? And again, here, uh, the majority of doctors said yes. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be like where you have to build a gym in the workplace, uh, but at least you can just give them, you know, a, an hour to go take a walk. 
While many of these suggestions are tall orders that likely will require buy-in from multiple sections of society, Doris Swamy said there are steps that food and beverage manufacturers and other industry stakeholders can take now to help address the obesity epidemic. The first is to simply be an active partner in the fight against obesity. Uh, they need to recognize this is all of us. It's their family members too. You know, when they, uh, uh, they may be making a lot of money, but at the cost of their own employees getting unhealthy. So they need to be partners and they need to set obesity benchmarks and say, okay, if obesity rates are rising, we need to work with government agencies and with doctors and consumers. Uh, you know, that's one. The second, I think they need to come up with products that uh, can help consumers uh, in, in all of these areas. His second suggestion is a bit more progressive, and that's the tie company profits to health outcomes associated with products, similar to how some companies already do this to connect sustainability goals with business outcomes. It's anything that manufacturers can do to win off their profits off of carbohydrates. I think if they can put out a shareholder report saying X amount of our profits is from carbohydrates and we plan to cut it down uh, from 50% of our profits to 20% of our profits, you know, just like fuel emissions, they need to set some targets. I mean, this is uh, obviously may not happen, but I think any healthy substitute they can come up with, uh, easy ways they can come up with to help consumers track unhealthy behaviors, I think all that is good. I mean, they're the new cigarette companies, you know, some of these high-calorie companies, So, but they don't want to go down that path. I think they have a chance to sort of uh, redeem themselves. Finally, he said he would like to see more industry support for access by lower-income Americans to healthier food that currently tends to be more premium-priced. Several companies already are doing this through partnerships with governments, retailers, and insurers to provide, for example, prescriptions to their products or to offer them on a sliding cost scale. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.